The first time, I am wearing green cotton. The second time, black denim. The third time, white linen when they try to name my rainforest mind. The first time, I am picking at cheap plastic. The second time, peeling linoleum. The third time, manila folder as they put letters to a blood wildness. Like sticking magnets to wet leaves, they're struggling. Me too. Often, we overlook the power of young people to create change. Yes to Youth is a podcast series getting to know changemakers who started early and are making a real impact, in spite of and often because of their age and identity. Yes to Youth is presented by Let's Care in collaboration with LearnServe International, which equips high school students from diverse backgrounds with the entrepreneurial vision, tenacity, confidence, and leadership skills needed to tackle social challenges at home and abroad. I'm your host, Matt Scott. So my name is Mary. I'm currently based in New York, but I'm from Virginia. I am a techie and crisis counselor, now turned medical student, doing work in environmental justice um, and social equity in healthcare. I have a little tiny side hustle as a spoken word poet, and I read way too many books, <laughs> given um, given the time and, and the hours of the week. Just as we start out, I want to just dive in and ask you a question that I know you've you've probably been asked many times. What pisses you off? <laughs> oh man, um, I think so many things in like an extractive capitalist economy. But like, if I had to say one thing, I would say systems not working for the people they're supposed to work for. And I think I've tried to try and figure out where I can have a foot in this at any point. Um, but with LearnServe specifically, which was a decade ago now, I answered this question by saying I am really, really pissed off when people with rare diseases don't get treatment, even when those treatments are sitting on the shelf because it's not profitable for some pharma company. Um, and I think that kind of ethos has followed me <laughs> forever and ever. So thanks, Scott. Yeah, just to start there, what is what was your venture at LearnServe? I know that it was next-gen policy, but could you tell us more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So Next Gen Policy was basically a group of high school and then eventually college students who got involved in science policy advocacy, which shortly before LearnServe, I was not even aware was a thing. Um, I thought everyone who went into STEM or engineering was only interested in numbers or hard science or lab research, all of which are fantastic things to be interested in. And this is absolutely not mutually exclusive. But after just learning a little bit more about the state of the orphan disease and, and drug industry, I was like, oh, like this entire drug disease pipeline seems so far at removed outside of the lab, like yet it's the conduit to impact. And so our venture was having students connect um, with policymakers in the DC area, actually, although our biggest supporter actually ended up being from Florida. And we worked on a couple of different bills. We were successfully involved with an amendment to the Orphan Drug Disease Act that allowed companies um, to get on a fast track pathway and to get more government subsidies for funding for actually bringing things to market to help people. And so the idea idea was to really, first of all, like tell students what science policy was, and that if you were interested in the sciences, there's so many ways you can contribute. Um, and then to also get them involved in civic action. So writing letters to your senators, showing up in, at the Hill, um, getting involved in different protests, connecting with patients, things like that. I 
growing up as a high school student knew very little about policy. I knew very little about disease, especially rare diseases, but you are, you were very aware of those things. And so (laughs) I would love to know where that spark came from. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, And I think this is one of the really happy stories about public school, actually. So I was in, (laughs) I'm sorry, I shouldn't say actually, there are so many fantastic public schools, and we're very lucky to have them. But this was actually from a presentation that somebody did when I was in high school, kind of around their personal background. And I actually think it was for an AP biology class, but it was supposed to be connecting the science to the person. So you learn about a specific pathway, and then you hear about how this is actually showing up in someone's life, you know, necessarily just keeping it kind of abstract. And so I just went up to them and I asked them some more questions because I had never heard of their specific condition before. And they were like, oh, and, you know, I think at that point I was naive and I I assumed um, I I had heard a lot of like America first rhetoric growing up. I think as a child of immigrants, it's pretty classic for that to happen. And I was like, oh, anybody who's sick in America, you know, is going to get medical treatment. And he was like, oh, actually, there's nothing that they can really much do for me. I'm in a couple of clinical trials. And I was like, excuse me, what? And so I. I talked some more. I did some, I did a little bit more research just because I think from, from that point, and this can sound naive, but I actually think it drives still a lot of science policy and just like a, a genuine like unfairness. And at that point I had been like slightly introduced to the NIH through, through kind of like other folks in, in Virginia. And I was like, there's so much research going on. I like literally found a lab dedicated to this, like what's going on. And so that was kind of my entryway. And then after that, I think it's impossible to get connected with a group that does advocacy for rare diseases and not learn about the drug development pathway. <laughs> and so I learned more about all of the different phases, about the millions and millions of dollars it takes to invest in something. And then again, I, I felt a little horrified when I learned about the, the concept of market sizing for a group of sick people, you know, figuring out if you're going to distribute drugs in certain countries, like at all, if they're profitable enough, or you need profit in one group to sustain given life-saving treatments in another group. And I like, this is bonkers. This is absolutely bonkers. Why don't I know more about this? And why isn't this part of science curricula? Yeah. And so I think from there on out that that was kind of every time I learned something in in a STEM class, which my entire high school was geared towards, I I couldn't help thinking about the actual person impact. And and I felt a bit of a thirst for that, that I didn't feel was covered in in school. That's incredible. And I immediately am wondering what elements of your learn serve experience and what you learned over the course of, you know, of working on next gen policy with learn serve were things that you that really informed your journey doing all this work. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I think like all of it, <laughs> I think learn serve getting in where they get in, you know, and then specifically in the Northern Virginia and DC area, which I think can be one of like the, the very interesting examples of the, the giant wealth gap that, that exists, especially in DC. So I was from Nova, but I hadn't grown up there. We'd grown, I'd grown up a little further South. And so I think a lot of the things that I saw growing up and identifying as somebody who was, you know, quote unquote, like socioeconomically disadvantaged or low SDS or whatever, and then actually kind of like moving up like through education, kind of in into the grad school world, now in the med school world, in, in places where most people have very, very different backgrounds. I think LearnServe showed me that you don't have to just kind of sit there and feel helpless when you feel something's wrong and that you can listen mm-hmm. to your gut when, when you're like, you know, 15, which, which is not a feeling I think that is actually nurtured by a lot of different places in, in kind of didactic learning and theory. I think a lot of it's focused on learning this. And when you're focused on getting all the details of a system, sometimes it's hard to think about why the system works the way it does. And if it's actually doing what it's supposed to do, you're 
you're just learning about the system and like that's a system and that's it. And I think I see this mindset, you know, starting like pretty early, you know, if you're tutoring kids who want to get into certain schools, you're going to see it early, right? And then in those schools themselves, absolutely in the beyond that, because people kind of codify what they have. And so learn sort of actually giving me time to step aside and be like, hey, you know, like, that little like injustice that you felt, that little anger that you felt, there's actually a place for it to go. There's actually like communities of people who care about this um, and ways to support this and ways to be generative about how you show up in the world instead of taking all the time at the, to the best that you can, you know, in the system that exists. So I think it's absolutely informed almost everything I do. And I think in medicine, which on the surface, you know, is very healy, but also can be super deeply extractive, especially given its history in, in America and like the Western world, like even the, you know, the very racialized way medicine was developed, right? You know, I think, like it gave me that outlet early and it you know again it's like never left i know that there there've been a lot of exciting moments the one that stands out to me personally is being just recognized when uh, president obama in 2012 put the fda safety and innovation act into place but what else have you been up to oh man <laughs> This, I feel like this is like every millennial's like angsty existential crisis. So I'm going to have one like live. <laughs> um, so I, I went to school and I studied a bunch of stuff. And I think that is a really good thing. And I think being able to put stuff together across lots of industries helps you not feel locked out and like locked into any specific thing. So I, I played around with a lot of, of industries, some that I regret, like banking and some that I don't. <laughs> um, and then I graduated. I went to Microsoft. Loved it. I love the PNW. But I don't know if this was Learn Server. This is just my natural kind of personality. But over time, um, I'd always been interested in healthcare. I, I was a home aide for my grandma, basically growing up. It was, I think it's super common for some immigrants to live in like multi-generational households. And she kind of went through a hard time and eventually like passed away in her house. And so I think that was always like an informative thing for me to, to kind of be moved towards healthcare, at least think about applications to healthcare. And so I, I started thinking about, about medical school kind of at that point, even though I loved everything that I was doing and I loved my team and I got really lucky. And then at the same time, there's this group that has been doing amazing work during the COVID pandemic called the Crisis Text Line, where they provide emergency counseling services and you just text in and it's awesome. And so I became a, a crisis counselor with them while I was doing kind of a full-time job. And, and over time, I realized that I actually started to like showing up more for crisis counseling volunteering than I did for my full-time job, even though I really love both. And so I was like, oh man, okay, I think this is kind of the clarion call. And so I, I was like a techie, you know, then then turned med student now. And I think in med school has been so interesting in so many different ways, especially during this pandemic. But I think kind of one of the best things I've done in med school is, is help co-found this thing called the Diversity Innovation Hub, which is essentially like we're a community hub but we also are a small like venture capital group that gives money back to local entrepreneurs in the Bronx and in East Harlem who are interested in, in solving healthcare issues for themselves, which I think is sometimes overlooked in, in academia or higher education. Um, so that's been fantastic. I run research for the Medical Student for a Sustainable Future organization, which is also amazing and kind of trying to give students a way to channel what they care about into, you know, into the ways that you have to show up on paper as a medical student. And then also being part of the Times of Healthcare movement has been amazing and just kind of watching that sweep the world. So honestly, I mean, I think like I am so grateful for all the opportunities like that are that are academic and that, you know, makes sense for, you know, someone in, in grad school, like again on paper. But I think when I remember like the meetings and the people, um, it's always through these, you know, these, these side hustles, which I hope one day will integrate into full-time hustles for folks who feel like they don't have to choose. But yeah, if, I, if that had to be, you know, kind of how I summarize it, I think that that's, that's what I would say. 
Yeah, it's so powerful. And one thing that really stands out to me about your journey is that you have this work that you're doing that's in, in the medical field and in with health and healthcare, but you also bring just all of this other background. You mentioned the crisis counseling, crisis line work that you've done, um, but also I know that you're a spoken word poet. That oh yeah, <laughs> opera. That you know yeah. you you have all yeah. these different approaches. What has that been like? Just bringing all of these different perspectives to the table. I'm almost picturing like a superhero where you know, you're you're taking off your, your one costume and then putting on another and you have a different identity. And that's how a lot of people approach their different interests. But how, how do you manage to navigate with all of these different pieces of you coming together? <laughs> well, thank you for that question. That is such an incredibly thoughtful question. I I think that, you know, it's funny. If if I were a quote unquote person trying to change clothes, I, I'm the kind of person who would, you know, wear the hoodie for like four days straight and like have the one pair of pants. <laughs> That's like a unicorn. I'd like Steve Jobs it without being Steve Jobs whatsoever. <laughs> and so I, I think when I when I try to think about this, I honestly, I think growing up, you know, I'm, I'm going to make the assumption that you can perhaps relate to this, but I think there's a lot of code switching that we do in our environments and a lot of okay. hiding kind of like certain things that you think are, you know, going to be assumed or, or kind of correlated with like ideologies that, you know, maybe might might be like, you know, uh, not fitting in with, with the group at the moment or whatever you're, you know, like different structures of power have different norms. And I think for me, what's been really helpful is kind of thinking about my experience as like an intense strength and then thinking of kind of connections beforehand. So I, I think like, for example, in medicine, I think one of the most amazing ways that this showed up to me was actually, there was a patient um, that I, that I met kind of the first year med school, there was like a patient scenario. Gener- and in medicine, you have like a lot of clinical care and students can be responsible for some of the social coordination. But for example, if you have someone, you know, who's experiencing homelessness, like generally a social worker would kind of coordinate programs for them. You get a little bit of work on this in the free clinic, but not a ton. But I remember that there, you know, th- that, th- that this person was really concerned about food for their children. And if they were institutionalized, like what would their kids do? And like, specifically, she was like, I can't pack them a lunch. And I grew up on free lunches in you know in Virginia which is a little bit of, of a different of a different ball game than, than New York but I was like wait there's like so many like state-based options that you can use um, and had a conversation with with the patient and I think right then I, I felt like just the strength of, of diverse backgrounds you know not just from a, an SES perspective or, or a program perspective but in just the way that you talk to people and I think the way that you can make people feel like yeah I understand if I were you know watch your shoes I'd, I'd be where you are and, and we're all like like that I don't think there's much separating people no matter your degrees or where you are and so I think bringing that approach, especially in healthcare, which, you know, ultimately should be about the patient at the end of the day. I think that has been helpful. And then I think the second thing is that kind of in in environments that are a little bit more shall we say conservative, I think bringing all these interests to bear is a strength in that you can actually connect people to causes that they thought had nothing to do with them. So for example, like environmental justice and and medicine. So I'm interested in in dermatology, which is arguably one of the most conservative specialties in medicine. And I think one of the things that is, is drew me to dermatology is that, you know, probably not surprising to hear, but that there's a huge lack um, of just photos in our educational materials and in kind of studies that are looking at, at different types of skin in terms of just people of color. And when you have to develop like actual treatment regimens that that change literally on the color of someone's skin, that's one, a very tricky thing to navigate, I think, from just like a speaking perspective. But two, you need the people there. So if you can frame it as kind of the norms that make sense for clinicians. So for example, 
quality of clinical care, health outcomes. If we're moving into a value-based world, how you create you know, value for yourself with all of these populations who are underserved. Like I think there are ways to frame that. With environmental justice, there are medical and clinical impacts of environmental justice. And if you frame it less, even though it is absolutely connected to the history of systemic racism that mm-hmm. we have in the country, but if you connect it to these are underserved patient populations, these are different clinical presentations that you need to be aware of from a didactic perspective and from a teaching student's perspective, then I think you can, you know, you can speak the language sort of to introduce new concepts. And I've always, I, I generally, you know, I don't think I'm the smart person in the room. I definitely don't know the most medicine. I don't know the most tech. I don't know the most anything most of the time. But I think sometimes what I on general, like generally tend to have um, is, is an ability to see across like a couple of different disciplines and to try and make a compelling argument, you know, based on whatever I think the norm is for that group. I'm not right all the time, but I think it's been a helpful way to approach things without having to feel like I'm constantly like molting into different skins, just because I don't think I'd be good at it. Like there are people so much better at me than that. And I'll stick with like my uniform, you know, that I wear for like most of the week during quarantine. Is there a relation between like the work that you do and the topics of your poetry? And is there a poem that stands out to you? Before hearing that answer, I want to tell you, yes you, the Yes to Youth podcast listeners, more about why I personally love LearnServe. I volunteered with LearnServe since 2015, and the thing that's kept me involved and that's inspired me most about LearnServe is that LearnServe knows that young people have something powerful to contribute, and it helps them tap into that real-world superpower. My organization, Let's Care, is all about passing the mic to those who often go unheard in social change, and LearnServe does just that. If you believe in passing the mic, I'd encourage you to visit learn-serve.org to support. Again, that's learn-serve.org. There, you can donate, whether your money or time. And in fact, on Thursday, April 29th at 7 p.m. Eastern, LearnServe is hosting its virtual gala with the theme, a theme I love, of the courage to change. And you can be part of it. Learn more at learn-serve.org. But now, back to the episode. Is there a relation between like the work that you do and the topics of your poetry? And is there a poem that stands out to you? Yes. Heck yes. And and I think the the lens that it gets filtered through is just my my personal experience kind of growing up. I think every poet does this, right? You put your your body print onto whatever you're writing. A lot of my poems are, I think, you know, they they used to be about um, kind of questioning like systems, which I, I know I've used the word system so many times, but I think I, the poetry is like where I kind of give myself a bit of an outlet. You know what I said earlier about not compromising the parts of yourself that that need downtime. So I think poetry sometimes like when I get into a flow state, I can write a little bit. It's ways to like reflect on my own self and kind of how the work impacts the self, you know, as well as as reflections on on just growing up because the systems aren't only just, you know, your work and what you're making change in and and topics on the surface. They're also internal and can be like really painful or really joyful. So there is one poem that that stands out um, and it's called Rainforest Mind. And it's just how I feel about all of the ways that I just think that like my brain works because I think, you know, I'm not sure if this is relatable, but I think sometimes you're really proud of your brain and other times you're like, what the 
heck is going on? You know, could you please function differently, right? Kind of with the neurodiverse descriptors is kind of generally what that means. So my brain chemistry is a little bit different. And sometimes it feels like a huge, huge, huge blessing. Um, and other times it can feel like a serious obstacle. This is Rainforest Mind by Mary Sun, and a quick warning that there is brief mention of rape in this poem. Please make sure to take the space and time you need to make sure that you're comfortable as you listen to this poem. Now, Rainforest Mind. This is Rainforest Mind. The first time, I am wearing green cotton. The second time, black denim. The third time, white linen, when they try to name my rainforest mind. The first time, I am picking at cheap plastic. The second time, peeling linoleum. The third time, manila folder, as they put letters to a blood wildness like sticking magnets to wet leaves. They're struggling. Me too. Rainforest Mind is not broken, jagged capitals or Dr. Scrawl, this clueless checklist. I think that someone should tell them. Tell them that rainforests are histories. Armies of giants growing from a holy wine, sopping birthplaces that were dried out too soon. Rainforest mind is the self as wood cortex, pacing thoughts as branching vines, this world as so many tree children knit together by loneliness and a yearning of roots. Mine learned to drink blood water survived on the poison of a choiceless pain. Of course I grew sideways. Rainforest mind has you watering dark gardens, has you leaving the alarm shrieking for hours just so something will really need you. Rainforest mind remembers the rape and the summit in the same breath. It is less where things fall now, more how deep how far they stretch the accordion of your branches. Rainforest mind needs to grow over the sun sometimes, need you to find comfort in our gaps, because how can a forest exist without shade? You were made to grow blind, to foster a darkness so gorgeous it learns starlight. No one shames the first frost for its murders, Do not shame yourself for the corpses you never asked for. All you can do is carry them in your cage of ribs, smear peat and moss on their eyes when their stares do not serve you, write the novel's worth of happy endings your spine does not believe in, love the child, I give you permission. A white coat will tell you that you are trying to outrun loneliness. But how can the canopy leaves be lonely? They are nestled so close, a drop of rain takes ten minutes to hit the ground. Tell them that rainforests are surface area, 
soldier leaves packed so tight in their own. The general's conversation can carry for a beautiful, beautiful mile. Rainforest mine means splinter off in the middle of a sentence. Another vine is growing. Rainforest mine doesn't plan commutes. Doesn't really see time. Doesn't accept the first or second or third ending. Rainforest mind won't remember birthdays or cook or allow you to pretend at parties, but it is always sure that everything can grow, can be better and fuller and more branched than the ground understands what to do with. Rainforest mind needs you to read irresponsibly, to order delivery from fifty feet away, to hang up on your mother and move to Seattle. Give your grief to its cedars, count their generations, and realize they have absorbed so much more than your own. When you are done trail running, when you have finally caught your breath, the forest will start to hyperventilate again. Let it. Let the thoughts sieve. Cross your bows protectively over one another and watch. As they touch you through a glass wall, rainforest mind sings an ode to the softness in our skulls, to the fear of growing whole. Because who are you without the reverberations? Ignore the straight lanes you think everyone lives in. Rip yourself open and sew your own sutures. Split so often they become familiar seams. Hold yourself together. As another one leaves, you know you are already growing a new vine. In case the last offerings were not enough, and you are already leaving it too. Twenty world leaders sit around a table in Buenos Aires, and the world burns. Eight hours north, a rainforest filters their smoke through its lungs. In its canopy are half the species on this earth: its plants eating its animals, and its animals eating its plants. Preying on yourself, the logic of the Amazon, and of you. Yet you both manage to housekeep this place, to airbrush their pain, to bubble in the alchemy of turning loss into oxygen. I, I think you know, for better for worse, for all like the beauty and the ugliness. I think it is you know a piece of that part of of how I work that like lets me look at a lot of different things and lets me kind of try and and you know do the turbo energy boost once in a while. So, you know, that poem explores kind of all of that. It explores like how we value the ways that we do different things. You know, being forced to place a value on what you love and on social impact, you know, might be really difficult sometimes for us to do. And and then also explores you know how that is shaped by by just growing up and and the stuff that you go through and the things that you know it it makes you tend to care about a little bit more and the communities that it helps you understand more. So so yeah, I think that one would stand out. One thing that's really fascinating to me about all that you just shared is just that you you not only are so focused on like what's the work that needs to be done, but you manage to combine these other things that you're passionate about, like justice, for instance, really broadly, and a lot of different issues that you've mentioned to 
turn a career or really create a career that is focused on those things. And you're building that and you're doing that work even now. And it's really incredible. But I I actually want to go back to a question that I know that Scott Reckler, who's the director of Learn and Serve, was thinking about a few years back when you were recognized at the Learn Serve Gala in 2016. And he posed this question, I think a rhetorical question, but still a good question on nature versus nurture. And so you were recognized along with your siblings, Matthew and Jessica. And I'm, I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts on that. If you feel that just where you've, how much of it you feel is nature, how much of it you feel is nurture, because people are probably wondering, you know, especially when you see a family who is like, rock stars doing impactful work through Learn, Serve, and, and beyond? I love that question. I have so many thoughts on this. So first, to, to preface this for, for folks, my, my two younger siblings, Jessica Son and Matthew Son, are immensely more talented than me, way better at coding. And they're doing their own set of phenomenal things that probably makes me look like a slacker. So just, just to preface, I want to say off the bat that I, I'm incredibly grateful for kind of the experience that my, my parents gave me and, you know, whatever there is running around innately in, in our genes, you know, both good and bad. Because I think, you know, like I think a couple of years ago, right, there's this really interesting debate on how how trauma is like literally part of your genetics now. And, you know, I think that's definitely something that resonates specifically with like people of color in this country. And, you know, like, it's interesting, because my parents, I think they instilled in me a lot of things that kind of underlie the, the energy that I bring to a lot of things. And, and they also kind of developed a, a really strong sense of self. At the same time, there are things that I work on where, you know, the viewpoints of some of my parents or relatives are like diametrically opposed. And I think that's been really interesting to navigate in a country like America where, you know, we're literally split into two parties, right? So I think that's been really cool. You know, I got to say that I come down extremely strongly, though, on the nature front of this question. I'm a huge believer in your early experiences kind of fundamentally shaping not necessarily who you are and what you're interested in, but the way you respond to situations and maybe your sense of justice, which can then absolutely devolve, like evolve over time to fall. But I think it's it's absolutely nurture. And I think it's groups like Learn Serve. I think it's groups that, you know, support med students who are going through a hard time. I think it's groups like crisis counseling, where they might intervene at a specific point in your life, where you can kind of look at the patterns of your own behavior. And then and then think, you know, like, is this serving like what I think my actual values are? And how do I align that? I absolutely think that it that it's nurture. And then that's, that's really needed. And but I recognize at the same time that a lot of that nurturing is done by by the people, you know, who are your immediate, immediate family. So huge crossover, but I would absolutely say nurture. Right. Now we have an answer to the question. Scott, <laughs> with a giant caveat. Yeah. With a giant caveat. And so, you know, as we sort of get toward the end of the interview, I want to ask a question that's just looking at your story overall, whether it's looking back at where you've been or looking ahead at where you want to go. I ask this question all the time. If your life were a book or documentary, what would the title be and why? Oh, the hard-hitting questions, man. <laughs> oh my God. So I'm like a I'm a giant book nerd and I you know I was thinking about this. Realize that I do not have the finesse of so many of my favorite authors. So this is just going to be short and <laughs> probably not that sweet. But but I think if I had to like look at my life overall, I, I would love to have like a you know, like an indie screenplay or something yeah. um, called called The Good Spiral. And I, I choose a spiral really specifically because I think it's one of the the ideas that that has 
impacted how I see everything. The idea of like life as a spiral, I think is one already so radically different from kind of the linear path that you get sold really early on in all your various forms of education and social norming. But also I think the spiral is really helpful in that kind of like when you stretch it out, you realize that you can be at like different points or sorry, the same point horizontally, but like an incredibly different point vertically. Right. And so I think sometimes that we take specific career markers or I don't know, like years in grad school or whatever it is, like, you know, income maybe as, as markers for your overall growth as a person, which like absolutely makes sense in the system that we're in. But I think with a spiral, with a 2D-ness, you get the sense that you can be in like, quote unquote, the same place on the surface and an incredibly different place from inside. Um, and so I also add good in there because I do hope that as like with every iteration around the spiral of what I'm doing and, you know, especially as a millennial, you know, thinking, what am I doing with my life, you know, and, and trying to move things forward? You know, I really hope it's in a good direction, trying to make micro adjustments and inch myself along the spiral. But um, I think it's been a really helpful concept for me. I think it takes some of the pressure off. And I think it also recognizes a lot of the growth that doesn't get recognized or doesn't get valued in the way that we might value some other career markers. So I'd go with that. Mary, where could people like keep up with you and your work and the things that you're you're up to? Okay, so I'm going to plug the Diversity Innovation Hub because I do a lot of work here. D-I-H-U-B.co, so D-I-H-Hub.co. And then also my Instagram is where I post like approximately two photos a year, mostly about activism. But if I ever, you know, if we ever get back to per- into doing poetry slams and readings in person, I post my work on there. So that's at Mary the Words on Instagram. So yeah, Mary the Words, but just with one R because that's my name. <laughs> um, that's yeah. Where I'm at. And you can always, you know, send me an email or reach out on LinkedIn. Yeah, I think just as a as a final question, I want to kind of give you the floor to share um, just your advice for anyone who's listening, who wants to make an impact in the world and who wants to do the work that change makers do. Yes. Awesome. So, you know, I think from the jump, I just want to say that the biggest thing that I think is most important is that this journey is hard. A lot of the places you are in will not be built for this journey. They will not necessarily support this journey, which is not to be cynical because there will be absolutely people behind you like Matt Scott, like Scott Reckler, like LearnServe, um, like all of these groups that want to help and kind of figure out alternatives. So there absolutely is a community, but generally overall, the structure is one of, of change from the status quo. And so kind of given that you might be existing in that environment as a change maker. Um, I think the number one thing that we don't ever say to ourselves, uh, you know, sometimes we don't think about enough is like, do not compromise the parts of yourself that you love, like whether they're quote unquote productive or not, you know, whether it's like that film you like or that hobby you do, or like just needing an hour, you know, a day or a week or whatever it is, do not compromise that part of yourself. And even if you find yourself in medical school or grad school or PhD program or a banking job or whatever, and on the surface, you, you know, you're like, how do I find alignment with my values? Don't compromise the part of yourself that loves that as well, because you can find a media group, you can find a group of people, you can start something, you can generate something, you can take your knowledge that you've learned from these tough systems um, and apply it towards an alternative. You know, I think that's how the platform cooperatives, like that entire concept got started. Absolutely honor those parts of yourself, even if it's in a difficult system. And then always try and find ways to, to make it an outlet where, you know, you're not necessarily quote unquote, like being productive or have to take action, but where you feel like you're working towards something that, that kind of gives you like a source of energy. So take care of yourself and make sure that you try and feed all of your different interests, even if it is tough. Thank you for listening to the Yes to Youth podcast presented by Let's Care in collaboration with LearnServe International. 
If you have a story to share or a perspective to share about a LearnServe venture or learning that resonates with you, just go to the show notes or visit anchor.fm slash yes to youth slash message. Again, that's anchor.fm slash yes to youth slash message to record a voicemail of your own. It might just end up on the podcast and we'd love to hear from you. Thank you again for listening and until next time, keep impacting.